Our family returned from vacation last Saturday night late, and so on Sunday we took the chance to go and visit another local church in our neighborhood, New Mount Zion Baptist Church, which is almost entirely an African-American congregation. We were misfits culturally there. And we knew we would be, and we felt it as soon as we pulled into the parking lot. But not for very long. We went in the wrong door, and so a young man, I think he was a teenager, got up from his information table and walked us personally to the sanctuary. And there, several women, recognizing that we were new, welcomed us, not just with handshakes, but with hugs. And then we walked on into the sanctuary, and we found a pew that had enough space in it for our family, and we made our way in. And the man at the other end of the pew saw us coming, and he beckoned us on in. Come on in and sit with me. He welcomed us there. We sat with him as worship began. They had a baptism, and then after that followed a congregational prayer for which we all stood up. And as we did, that man next to me gently elbowed my arm, and he offered me his large left hand, and he gripped my right hand in his left hand throughout that entire long, rolling congregational prayer. And when it was all done, he and I locked eyes together and we smiled and we nodded our heads knowingly at each other because we were united. Not just by the strong grip of hands, but by the strong grip of baptism. Now, I want to ask you to do something that's sort of uncomfortable in this church, although it would not have been in that one. I want you to take a moment and look not at me, but look around at your neighbors. I want you to to do that. Do the uncomfortable thing. Take a look around and see who your neighbors are this morning. Now, whether they look like you or not, Don't be deceived. You are misfit. Because of different experiences you've brought here this morning, different expectations. Because of different family customs, you've brought along different assumptions. And because of different habits of your own personal nature, you've brought along different comfort zones. The fuel for division is abundant and it is flammable, but it need not ignite. Not here in the church, for sure. Why? Because the water of baptism is more powerful. There is only one church, only one body of Christ, and there is in it only one baptism And it does not ignite us to division. It rather unites us in the humility of love. And so, with that hope of the unifying gospel that he preached, the Apostle Paul could urge his Ephesian brothers and sisters to do the redemptive work that comes along with that baptism. So using Ephesians 4, will you join me along with the Apostle, with these words. 
As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. We will make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as we were called to one hope when we were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. And amen indeed. Will you stand? These past four Sundays or so, John has been guiding you through the last four sections of Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. And there in those accounts that John has read and preached on for you, Luke has been making it very clear, if you've noticed and and paid attention to those accounts, he's been making it very clear that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were watching very carefully. They were watching very carefully as this man Jesus made his way through their world and into their world in his own sort of ways. And they were scandalized when he forgave the sins of a paralyzed man. You remember that a few weeks ago? And they were offended when he ate with tax collectors and sinners. You remember that a couple weeks ago? And they were baffled when his disciples refused to fast with him. You remember that from last week? Now they're about to be furious. Luke is giving us a couple of of events that happen on Sabbath days. He gives us two of them consecutively because there's something that Luke wants to emphasize about this man Jesus, and I think that it's this. If you don't avail yourself of the rest that God provides in His Sabbath, then you may not know the rest of God, the parts of God that you might not see otherwise. So you young Christians, as I read this short little passage before us here, I want you to to notice We're going to read about two different Sabbath days. And see if you can can hear this. On each of these days, Jesus does the same thing. But he does it in two very different ways. See if you can notice what it is. This is Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. 
And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand. Help me to preach. Help my words to be your words in the hearts of your people. Father, we pray that you would move your spirit among us so that we might know you better, so that we might, in fact, avail ourselves of the rest you offer in your gospel, so that we might see the rest of you, that you love us, that you delight in us, that you take joy in your sons and daughters, and that we might rest in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, today is August 13, I think. Isn't that right? August 13. And that can only mean one thing. School starts in a week. Right? I mean, for most of you kids, yes, I see some hands raised. Yes, joyful hands. They can't wait for school to start. Most of you are not raising your hands because you're not so joyful about that. But school starts in a week, and that means that summer vacation is nearly over. It's coming to a close. And it seems to me that it always does so kind of with a flurry because we get to the month of August and people are trying to get their last-minute getaways. I mean, our family took off and went to Colorado a week ago because it was the one chance in the summer all five of us could get together and go somewhere together. And I think many people are, are trying to do that kind of thing at the beginning of the month of August. I feel like, like the month of August is the month in which we hurry up and rest Because once school starts, we're not going to have a chance to until when? And so we hurry up and rest. And so August, it seems like, is the month when you feel the most exhausted because you've been on vacation. You know, you've been planning your vacation. You've been packing your luggage and lugging your luggage. It's got that name because you lug it around and it's not fun to lug it around. And you've been waiting in security lines at the airport and in traffic lines on the highway and You've been paying the hotel bills, and after you get back a couple weeks later, you see on your credit card bill that the rental car company charged you for tolls that you didn't know that you incurred while you were driving around on highways you didn't know. It's not restful, is it? Vacation is not restful. Because vacation, whether you take it with family or friends or both or either, or vacation is not intended to be restful. Do you know that? It's not what vacation is for. Vacation is intended to provide you with common experiences for the sake of relational bonding. That's what vacation is, isn't it? I mean, vacation is for the purpose of, remember that time? Remember that time that we went whitewater rafting on the Arkansas River through Browns Canyon and the raft got stuck on that big rock in the middle of the river and it was only 10 seconds, but it seemed like 10 minutes and the raft guide got a little bit quietly panicked and she said, this has not happened to me before, as the other rafts came soaring past you into the rapids. And a moment later, the raft was freed and you went on down the river. Remember that time that happened? That's what vacation is for. It's, it's a bonding experience for relationships. It is not for rest. There's only one place you can find rest. You know that, don't you? Only one place you can actually find true rest, and that is, of course, 
in the gospel of Jesus. I mean, Luke is still early in his account as he introduces this man Jesus to us here at the beginning of chapter 6. He's just begun to introduce him over the past two chapters is all that we've had of him so far. He's not even named all of the 12 disciples yet. But there's something that Luke wants for us to know about this man early on in our journey with him. And he shows it by putting these two Sabbath events back to back because he wants us to see that Jesus came to bring us rest. Now, I would say, again, if you, if you aren't taking up the rest of God that's graciously provided by God in His Sabbath, then you risk missing the rest of God. The other sides of God that you can't otherwise see. His delight, His satisfaction, His joy All of those things that he derives out of you as his daughter or as his son. Now, before you, in your minds and your hearts, get too legalistically wound up in what I may or may not mean by all of that, let's move along into this and consider it by means of three pairs. You can see them in the outline that's provided for you there in the bulletin. Three pairs of things. Work and rest, ritual and people and father and son. The first one is work and rest. And the statement that goes with this is this. Work is meaningful when rest is intentional. Work is meaningful when rest is intentional. This is the first time in Luke's gospel that Sabbath becomes an issue. And as you may know, if you read the other gospel accounts, you see that Sabbath becomes an issue a lot with Jesus and the religious leaders around him. It tends to be a a lightning rod issue. It's the first time in the Gospel of Luke that it shows up. and, And the Sabbath is so important to these religious leaders as they watch to see who Jesus is and what he's going to do. It's so important to them for good reasons because it is indisputably foundational to God's self-revelation. Indisputably. You heard the Ten Commandments read moments ago in the Old Testament reading of our liturgy. The Ten Commandments, or as some people would say, the Nine Commandments and One Suggestion. You know what the One Suggestion is, don't you? The Sabbath day. That's the One Suggestion that, that, that many people would say, is among these ten, but that's not how the gospel presents it. The ten commandments lead into the fourth one, and it goes like this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter or male servant or female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, of the Ten Commandments, maybe you noticed and you know this as you can kind of sound out the list in your own head perhaps. 
of the list of Ten Commandments, eight of them are negative. And by negative, what I mean is they say, you shall not. Eight of them tell you, you shall not do this, you shall not do that, you shall not have other gods before the Lord, you shall not worship images, you shall not steal, you shall not kill, you shall not. Eight of them are negative in a sense because they're about things that didn't even enter the equation before the fall occurred in Genesis chapter 3. Two of the commandments, however, are positive. They're commands that tell you, you shall. You shall do these things. You know the other one, right? You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those two positive commands, positive because they were elements of the creation from the very beginning. They are, as it were, in the commandments, lifelines back to creation as it was intended. Both of them are foundational structures of humanity. And so work and rest are keys to what it means to be a human being. What God created in the beginning, as you are aware, perhaps, was a rhythm of six days of labor and one day of rest. And over the course of generations, of course, as our world has transitioned from being, I'm no academic and a scholar, I don't know all these things, but but transitioned from being a largely agrarian society to being a more urban society, we now have established a a, a kind of a different rhythm, haven't we? It's a five-day of work rhythm with two days of Well, not so much rest, but recreation. So five days of labor and two days of recreation is kind of the rhythm in which we we live because our identities are wrapped up in our jobs rather than our family roles. I mean, I think that in ages past, people tended to identify themselves more with their family. They thought in, in terms of I'm a husband or a wife, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a son or a daughter, a friend. We, we thought of ourselves in terms of the relationships that we had with one another. We don't do that as much anymore, and certainly not in this society, because we identify ourselves so much with our, our jobs. I mean, we even have our kids talk about what they'll be when they grow up, as if they're not now something, rather than what they will do when they grow up. This is the language that that we use that emphasizes our identity. Our identity is, is determined by our careers in so many ways. We emphasize it so much. And so we strive for meaning by working and working and working and working. That's what so many of us do. There's a young woman in Australia whose name is Essina O'Neill. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Some of you will know that name, I suppose. She's a 20-year-old now, I think, but she became somewhat famous as a teenager for those who really follow social media, which I don't. I just learned of her recently. But over the past eight years, when she was 12 years old, 13 years old, she became engrossed in the world of social media, and she recognized that she could create for herself a, a character online. And in doing that, she could attract followers, people who would watch her life online, and she would post pictures of herself. She's a beautiful young girl. Pictures of herself or videos of her talking about something and some experience she's had. 
And she did all that and created, as many others have done, an online social media image, a character for other people to follow. And she gained followers. She became enormously popular throughout her teenage years. Over the course of a few years, she got to where she had 500,000, 600,000, a million followers who had subscribed to Essena's social media page and see her pictures and her videos. So much so that she began to, to, to actually make money by commercial advertisements on her social media pages. And she got offers to be a model in other countries. And she realized, I can make money. This can be my career. She's 17 years old. By the time she was 19 years old, she began to realize, this isn't just my career. This has transformed who I am. I don't even exist anymore. All there is is an image on a screen that millions of people around the world whom I don't even know and who don't know me watch when they check in online. That's all that it is. And she realized that all she had was work and work and work. She'd become her work. And in her last video, she finally bowed out of it all. She posted one last video online and she said, please, whatever you do, just go outside. Just go outside and do something real. Go talk to a human being. But get off the computer. And she shut it off. And she was gone. She was struggling to figure out who she was. And she was wrestling between the ideas of vocation and avocation. Your, your vocation is your calling, it's your gifting, your opportunities, your circumstances that lead to, well, a career. And your avocation, or plural, avocations, or your hobbies and your interests and those things that you enjoy and spend time on the side doing, vocation and avocation, and she had combined those things together. Your vocation is, is God putting the man in the garden to work it and keep it in the early chapters of Genesis. And God established vocations. He called you to work, to build something. And avocation is the, the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes sense of wine and music soothe the soul. Or a friend is closer than a brother. There are, there are elements of existence out there that will give you joy and pleasure and Fun, even. Avocations. They're more than just distractions. They're actually satisfaction. They give you satisfaction. But Essena, this young girl, was looking for more than just that. She was looking to be satisfying. That's what she was really after. Her work had no meaning because there was no rest. Your work has meaning if your rest is intentional. God's rest is defined for us in the fourth commandment. It explains there that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. God rested. What does that mean? Do you think about that? What, what does it mean that God rested? How can that be? Does that not seem to you like an oxymoron? God doesn't need rest. He's God. He's existed forever. Forever he has existed. And he doesn't get tired, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't need to take a breath. God doesn't need those sorts of things, and yet we're told God rested. What does that mean? 
Well, what did he do? Back in the creation account, as you, as you think through what those accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 tell you, what did God do from day to day? He created, and then what? He saw that it was good. Each day he saw that it was good. Each day he stepped back from his work and he was satisfied. And after the sixth day, he saw that it was all good and he rested on the seventh day. God's rest wasn't a physical requirement. It was him stepping back from his work. He hadn't become his work, but he stepped back from his work and he said, that's good, I'm satisfied, this is a good thing, and he took joy in it. That's what God did. That's the nature of his, his work and his rest balance. And he designed us to follow his pattern. He designed us to build something and then to be satisfied. To build something more and then to be satisfied. Whatever your vocation may be, whatever it is that you're building, you may be building a business. You might be building a medical practice. You might be building a family at home. Whatever it is that you're building... It's your vocation. God has called you and gifted you an opportunity to do that. And perhaps it puts bread on the table, as we say. And yet, he calls you to step back intentionally and to take satisfaction through worship and through avocational endeavors and even through inactivity. This is some of how God has given for us to recharge our batteries on the Lord's day and step back from the work that he's called us to do. But often, you know, the building and, and the, the work is simply not satisfying. A lot of times it seems pointless, or maybe you have no work at all. Maybe you're out of work, and it seems all pointless and difficult to find any satisfaction at all. Well, let's move on to the second point, which is ritual and people. God has given us a ritual for the Sabbath in a sense, And the statement here is this. Ritual is significant when people are prevalent. Ritual is significant when people are prevalent. Now, for you who are really especially careful with your dictionary definitions, i got to qualify this for you because I don't mean the word prevalent in the way that Webster's tells you what it means exactly. I know prevalent means prevalent. People would be everywhere. If something's prevalent, it's everywhere. People, there are billions of people around the world, they're prevalent. I know that. What I mean is, I'm trying to do a preacher thing with words here. they got to fit. People prevail. People prevail over the ritual. And it's pretty clear in the text, isn't it? You know, naturally a ritual developed around the, the Sabbath um, commandment. What is it exactly? And, and how do you do it? And God provided in the fourth commandment some some guidelines. He, he said, on that day you shall not do any work. Either you or your family under you or the people that work for you. Don't make them work. Don't work. Simple guidelines for the, for the Sabbath, but rather rest. But it's, it's not just a vague idea because ritual actually does matter in the Christian life. Ritual is a significant thing. Think of it this way. If you think of yourself by saying in your mind, I love God's people, and I hope all of you do. If you say in your mind, I love God's people, but you refuse to join yourself in membership to a visible local body of the church, then your statement, I love God's people, is very much questionable. 
Because you're not engaging with it a ritual. You're not doing something with it. If you think of yourself, I have a generous spirit, but you neglect to actually give of your material or your personal, then your claim to be generous is very questionable because you've not engaged it with a ritual, right? I mean, the same thing went with Abraham back in Genesis. If Abraham had believed God, but had cowered away from offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham's belief in God would be questionable, wouldn't it? There's always a ritual engaged with the statement because ritual demonstrates reality. And the Sabbath ritual then is significant. And so I want you to notice here in the text before you how in each of these two Sabbath events, Jesus does one thing and he does not do another. Notice, what is it? What is it that he does not do? He does not declare the Sabbath to be abolished. He does not dismiss the Sabbath in these texts. What happens here? He's going through the grain fields with his disciples and they plucked and ate some heads of grain and rubbed them in their hands and the Pharisees questioned, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And so Jesus, what he doesn't do is he doesn't say, oh guys, look, no, 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 you missed the memo. There's no more Sabbath. He didn't say that here, does he? What does he do? He refers to to David. He goes back to to the books of Samuel and he says, haven't you read about what David did when he was hungry? And his men were with him and he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence. A, A bread, it was a ceremonial loaf of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. But in that circumstance, David went in, the king, and and he ate the bread with the priest, gave it to him. Even the priest was complicit in their actions. And he and his men were refreshed by the bread that wasn't supposed to be for them. And Jesus says, David did that, guys. And then he claims it. He claims the Sabbath. He doesn't dismiss it. He claims it. He says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then notice what he does do. So if he does not dismiss the Sabbath altogether, what does he actually do? Young Christians, that was a question I asked you earlier. What, are the, what is the thing that Jesus does? He does the same thing twice, but in two different ways. What does he do? He does declare that people prevail over the ritual. People prevail over the ritual. Both times he does it. The disciples are hungry, and so he allows them to pluck the grain and to harvest the grain and eat it. And a man has a withered hand in the synagogue. Now, you've got to understand, a man with a withered hand back in that day, ordinarily, you know, they didn't have all the information technology, service industry, economy that we have now. And a man who had a withered hand, whether it was from a birth defect or an injury or something, his economic prospects were really slim. Because now his work ability was really slim. This man, because of his withered hand, probably lived in poverty. And what does Jesus do? He heals the man's hand. He restores him. Both times, people prevail over the ritual, despite the fact that the religious leaders of the day were saying to him, no, you can't do that. Not today. Wait till tomorrow. Don't do it today. And he said, no. 
people prevail over the ritual. And the thing is, for you and me, in our culture, we love this. Don't we? I mean, because we receive this in this way. You know, we think, yeah, you know, I can get along with a, with a religious ritual like this. One that bends to my convenience. A religious ritual that, that shapes to my desires and fits my preferences and will even fit my calendar. You know, if, 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 if people prevail over the ritual, then I can shape and reshape it however I want because, well, I prevail over it. But, no, you know better than that, right? Not so fast. Because just how do people prevail? What is it that happens for these people here? It's not for their convenience. It's for their restoration. That's, that's how Jesus prevails the people over the ritual. It's their restoration. The Sabbath doesn't serve your likes and your preferences. It serves your real needs. That's what it serves. It's restorative. The men were hungry, and so they were fed. The man was economically deprived and injured, and so he was restored. He was, he was healed because the ritual gives life. That's what the gospel is after, is to actually give life. It offers what you need, not necessarily what you prefer. Okay, so we do rituals in Sabbath observance ourselves, you know, in, because we, we exist together in a very certain context, and we, we do our ritual for the good of the people involved. You know, for example, the obvious things that you wouldn't even think about. When you come here on Sunday morning, we conduct our worship service in the English language because most of us speak English, right? I mean, if I got up here and just started speaking German to you, I think maybe there are only a couple of people I can think of that would follow along. And I wouldn't have any idea what I was saying. <laughs> so we speak in English because it's a contextually relevant way to let people prevail over the ritual, right? And we meet at 9.30 in the morning, presumably after a night of sleep. We don't meet at 3.30 in the morning in order to beat the morning coffee rush, right? So we, we, we let people prevail over the ritual. In certain ways, our gathering is designed to fit the needs of the people, but the ritual is still significant. Some people expect for for church just to last one hour, and this is a very cultural sort of thing. We we used to be in a church where the worship service, and I'm not kidding you, the worship service lasted 59 minutes and 45 seconds. Because, well, there would be complaints if it went over, and people would be late for lunch. There are churches like that. Last week, we went to New Mount Zion Baptist Church, and I'll tell you, it was a little bit different. We, we went, and the kids asked me on the way, they said, how long will this worship service be, do you think? And I said, well, I, I, mean, I looked at the schedule. I've not been there, but they have a worship service at 7.30 in the morning, and then they have Sunday school at 9, and then they have a worship service at 10.30, and I was working on the assumption. I mean, I got my own assumptions. My assumption that the two worship services would be the same thing. Oh, I was wrong. But I told the kids, it would be an hour and a half, I mean, based on what I can tell from the schedule. 10.30 it started, 1.30 we walked out. And it did not seem like three hours. I would do it again in a second because of the blessing that was there. The ritual is important, but it doesn't necessarily fit itself to your preferences and your 
convenience. Because the ritual of Sabbath worship is filled with the means of grace. And that's what you need to feed you. The Word of God and the sacraments, that baptismal bowl, even in the absence of a person to be baptized, still it feeds you. And the prayers and the fellowship of the saints among those in the auditorium, those things feed you and so you prevail. A friend of mine who's a pastor insists on this analogy. He says that church life needs to not look like going to Walmart. He said, you know, you go to Walmart and there, there are a million aisles and a million options and it's overwhelming. He said, church life shouldn't be like that. He says, rather, it should be like going to the corner convenience store. Somewhere simple where you can get fuel and relief and refreshment and be on your way. It's a place that feeds you. It's a place where you prevail and are not overwhelmed. Because the Sabbath, as a principle throughout the Old Testament and into the New, consists of a couple of different, well, realities that it pictures. One of those is it's an act of liberation. It's an act of liberation. God had, as he states in the the Ten Commandments, that he he had liberated his people from bondage. Therefore, remember the rest that I'm giving to you. So Sabbath is an act of liberation. It's also an act of trust. It's an act of stepping back from your work and not being consumed by it and acknowledging that God is the one who's really at work and He's the one who you trust to take care for you, to take care of you and your family. And so you can take a day off or two days off and rest. So it's an act of liberation. It's an act of trust because the needs of the people prevail over the ritual. And all of this, the the ministry of Jesus, as Luke begins to portray it, like the Sabbath, points to something much bigger. And and that's the third pair of things that you have there in that outline, Father and Son. And the statement is this. The Father is visible when the Son is vulnerable. The Father is visible when the Son is vulnerable. Vulnerable. In both of these accounts in this passage, Jesus goes out on the limb, doesn't he? I mean, he knows that the rule keepers are watching him. He knows they are. And, and he knows that they will call him to account for what he's doing on these particular days. But in the spirit of the law, he lets the people prevail by feeding the disciples, by restoring the man's hand. And by doing those things, he becomes vulnerable, doesn't he? It's very obvious he does. And then, even more so, with his big claim right at the center of this passage, he says this, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you have to recognize, and Luke doesn't emphasize it immediately until it moves on into the next event, Sabbath event, but you've got to recognize this is not just a claim of ownership over the Sabbath. This is a claim to be God. And I expect that these Pharisees, these, these teachers of the law, they would know this stuff. They, they would recognize that as he refers to himself as the Son of Man, as the Lord of the Sabbath, I mean, I would expect they knew what he was talking about. I am God. I created the Sabbath. Ages ago, before you were a twinkle in your mother's eye, before your mother was a twinkle in her eye, I created the Sabbath, and I'm Lord over it. 
And so they see all kinds of Sabbath violations in his actions here. And Luke tells us they were filled with fury. They were filled with rage. And they began to discuss what they might do to him. Now Matthew, in his account of the same thing, is more explicit at this point. Matthew says they began to plot how they might kill him. Now why so zealous? Why are, the, why are these Pharisees so zealous over this particular day? I mean, you might think that, that uh, they could say, oh, you know, it's, it's 24 hours. Look, okay, you did this stuff. We are not happy about it, but we're not going to kill you for it. No, they wanted to kill him for it. Why, why are they so zealous for it? Because God was. I mean, you just have to go back to Exodus 35 and see where Moses expounds on the Ten Commandments a bit. And he says to the people of Israel, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. That seems really extreme, doesn't it? I mean, how how is it that a loving God could say, if you don't rest on the seventh day, I'm going to put you to death? How is that? That doesn't seem right. How, how, why so extreme? You know, we condemn the Pharisees when we read stuff like this. But they, they knew something. They knew something. They knew that you must rest or you will die. What they didn't know was the bigger picture of what that meant. Here they were violating the Sabbath by in their hearts planning to destroy the life of a man. They didn't recognize that irony which should have been a little bit obvious to them. And in doing so, the son would become vulnerable so that the father would become visible. Because the Sabbath is pointing to a greater rest, a much greater rest, which we read earlier in our liturgy. If Joshua had given them, the Israelites, rest, Joshua led them into the promised land where they would have rest, presumably. If, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day of rest later. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest, and the writer of Hebrews means there, by faith in Jesus, whoever has entered God's rest by faith in Jesus has also rested from his works as God rested from his. And how did God rest? Remember? He stepped back from his work, and he said, that's good. That's very good. And so the, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, for those who have entered into the rest of God by faith in Jesus, they can step back and say, of themselves, that's good. Because God has said it of me. You know, still, if, if anyone refuses to go back to that idea of the death penalty for Sabbath violation, it's absurd, isn't it? It seems so extreme. But still, if anyone refuses the rest that God offers in Jesus, what do they find? Death. That's all there is that can possibly wait for them on the other side of refusing that rest. Death. And so God was foreshadowing. He was saying, look, if you, if you don't rest in the rest that I offer to you, all that there is for you is death. And God has given us this gospel that we might not refuse that rest, but rather if you avail yourself of the rest of God, then with him you must step back and say, that's good. 
it may not be what I had in mind. As you evaluate your own self, you might look at yourself and think, I'm not exactly what I had in mind, but God has called me good. God has declared of me in Jesus that, that I am, by the righteousness of Christ, very good. And so I can rest in that too. Because the Son made Himself vulnerable so that the Father would become visible. And His delight, His satisfaction, His joy even in you as His daughter or as His Son changes how you live with each other. I mean, as I I wrap it up here, let me think of a couple of, of quick little applications for you. Think about it this way. Who among you has ever not received criticism I don't think any hands will go up on that one. Everybody's received criticism. We all have. It's, it's, it's part of living in this broken, fallen world. And the criticism may come to you with accuracy. You know, you, know, you might hear that criticism, and it might come, come, and you might think, you know, that's right. I realize that about myself. And it might come in love from someone who, who means well, as, as the Proverbs will suggest. That's a good thing. And you receive it with humility. But it might come in some different ways. It might not come in love. It might come from someone who you kind of have a sense really kind of hates you and they're out to get you, but their criticism is right. What do you do? How do you possibly receive that with humility? Or what if the criticism is not accurate? What if it comes from someone, whether they're giving it in love or hatred, either way, and it's not even accurate? How do you receive that? You receive it with humility, because you know my heavenly Father has delighted in me. He has worked to create me by faith in Jesus, and he stepped back and he looked at me, he's looked at me, my, his son or his daughter, and he said, that's good. I love that one. And you rest in that. That's Sabbath rest. Or what about failure? Have you ever failed before? Feel like a failure? You lost your job or you don't do your job well or someone's told you you don't do your job, they've criticized you and you realize I don't do my job well or I, I don't do this well in my role in my family. You failed in some way or another. How do you live with that? Because that can, that can kill you. Unless you know the Sabbath rest of the gospel and you know that God has stepped back from his work in your soul and said of you, that one is good. I love that one. And you can rest in your Heavenly Father's delight. What about this one? What about success? How do you live with success? Because that will kill you too. Only if you recognize that it's only because your Heavenly Father delights in you that your success, however much you may deem it to be good, is not good enough. Only the Heavenly Father's declaration of you by faith in Jesus is good enough. And so you can rest in the delight of your Heavenly Father. That's the nature of Sabbath rest. If you avail yourself of the rest of God, then you will become convinced of the rest of God. Jesus didn't come to force you into new religious regulations. He came to give you rest. Summer vacation is over. It's over. So rest in the righteousness of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to rest. We pray that you would help us to recognize your love for us in this gospel and to believe it. To recognize that you have gained for us by your work, eternal rest, 
that we can enjoy even now as we wrestle and struggle with what it means to work and rest and to have ritual and yet prevalence over the ritual and all that it means in this good news for us, Father, because your Son has become vulnerable for us that we might have life. Help us, Lord, to believe this good news, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.